B.B. Warfield, the Lion of Princeton, relayed the story he had heard about a army officer who going through the unchartered and wild territory of the West sometime around the period of the Civil War as this army officer is going through this town and there is chaos and disruption and there is danger in a very crowded area of this western town. He saw a man approaching and as the story goes, he saw this man walking through the town with calmness and firmness of walk. And as Warfield told this story, he said that the army officer noticed that this man's demeanor inspired confidence. And as he passed this man, he stopped and he turned around and he looked at this man and he noticed that that man was looking back at him. And as they saw each other, they walked closer to one another and that army officer put his finger in the chest of the man who passed him and he demanded of him, what is the chief end of man? And that man who had come back to him said, man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever. And the army officer said in response, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. Now, it is one of those great stories in church history because there was something different about this man. He recognized something about his calm disposition that this man believed that God was actually sovereign. And he believed the truth that he had been raised to believe out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, those great doctrinal truths. And in a real sense, as Paul is writing Timothy, and this is a bit anachronistic, but Paul is essentially writing to Timothy as a Shorter Catechism boy. You'll notice earlier in this very chapter, Paul mentions that Timothy had been raised in verse 5. He says, I I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy had been raised in the faith. He had been raised under those doctrines of our holy faith and religion. He had been raised as a shorter catechism boy, as it were. And here now as a man and as one God is called into gospel ministry, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, and he is giving him a final word of instruction. One of the things that perhaps we've lost in the church is a sense of wonder about the pastoral letters on the whole. Um, There's something really wonderful about 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus because what the Apostle Paul is essentially doing in these three letters that we call the pastoral epistles is he is essentially saying here to Timothy and then later to Titus, he he is essentially saying there's a day coming when you're going to want to have an apostle to go to to ask about instruction for the life and the practice of the church, and you won't be able to do so. And so here is everything necessary for the continuation of gospel ministry in the Christian church through all ages till Christ comes again. That's the significance of the pastoral epistles. The, the apostle Paul is laying, as it were, the last stone in the foundation of which he and the other apostles were living stones and foundational stones for the New Covenant Church. And he is saying to Timothy and to every minister subsequent to Timothy, this is how you are to live in the church. This is how you are to minister in the church. This is how you are to conduct yourself in the church in every epoch till the end of time. Now, in light of that, I think... The passage before us is interesting because the Apostle Paul is giving 
in embryonic form everything that he is going to flesh out through the rest of this letter to Timothy. And he's going to do so really under two heads here tonight I want us to consider. First, he is going to explain the importance of guarding the gospel ministry. And then secondly, the importance of guarding the gospel doctrines, the importance of guarding the gospel ministry, and then related to that, the importance of guarding the gospel doctrine. Well, notice that Paul says something odd there in verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Now, um, to understand why Paul's writing this, you have to understand first and foremost that Timothy was a timid man. Uh, This is why Paul has to stir him up. This is why the apostle says things to Timothy like, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of uh, boldness and of a sound mind. Paul understands the peculiar temptations of different people who are wired in different ways, and he understands that Timothy has a proclivity to be more timid, to be um, more uh, aloof, as it were, to pull away. And in that sense, the Apostle Paul understands that there is a great danger for Timothy to um, fall into the snare of uh, cowardice. And that's that's an easy trap to fall into. When the world is pressuring you, when the world is mocking the church, when the world is mocking the Lord Jesus Christ, it's easy to fall into the snare of becoming ashamed of those precious truths that we should love so much. And so Paul leads this section by saying, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, Paul is going to say something here that's very important about gospel ministry. He's going to say that gospel ministry is always accompanied with suffering. When God calls a man into gospel ministry, he calls him into a ministry in which he will suffer. And notice that the apostle links those two things together so clearly. He says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, which he gave us in Christ before time began. And yet Paul notes that it is a ministry of suffering. Now, um, gospel ministry is a very frail thing. You know, I've often wondered why the Puritan movement didn't just continue forever, ad infinitum. What happened? I actually asked Joel Beakey that question once. What what happened? If the Puritans were so resolute, if they were so committed to gospel ministry, if they were so committed to the means of grace in the life of the church, if they were so committed to the shepherding ministry, I mean, this is the zenith of gospel ministry in the history of the Christian church, the Puritan era. Why doesn't it continue? Because the gospel ministry is a very frail thing. It's It's easily lost. It's easily replaced with other things. Um, I think the Apostle Paul is leading here by talking about the fragility of gospel ministry and yet the, the, the absolute necessity of it. Notice this. Notice that as he talks about the calling, notice verse 9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, And then notice verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. You see the connection there. This is a vital ministry. God has ordained the ministry of the gospel for his church in the world, and yet it is always going to come up against the gates of hell, and it's always 
going to result in suffering for those who are faithful and ministers. And then notice what Paul says in verse 12, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, we sometimes take verse 12 out of context. And rightly so, we love that verse. I know whom I have believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. And we understand that, and we read that in light of our salvation. We say, no one can ever snatch us out of Christ's hand. That's true. No one can ever, no one can ever pluck us out of his hand. We sing those hymns. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. We love to go to passages like Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of God. Uh, and I'm persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor visible or invisible, nothing can separate us. And that's true. But here I think the apostle is speaking more immediately about the ministry that God has called him to and that God has to preserve and guard the ministry of the gospel in the life of his church for the preservation of the gospel in the church and in the world. You know, I often have found it to be a thing of shock and interest that the church that the Apostle Paul spent the most time in, the church in Ephesus, the church in which he trained the elders for a period of three years, five hours a day. He planted a seminary, the School of Tyrannus, that that's the church in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, that faces the risk of having the lampstand removed. They had become a loveless church. We'll talk about that more in a moment. They were a doctrinal church, and yet the point is, unless the Lord preserves gospel ministry, By the way, that's the answer to why the Puritan movement didn't just continue forever because God chose to bring it to an end. But here, Paul says, I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him against that day. Um, There's a dire need for gospel ministry to be preserved in the life of the church. You know, I've thought about this a lot. The, the, the slide from faithful, gospel-believing, biblical, doctrinally sound, uh, vitally living churches into dead orthodoxy or liberalism or any other thing that we don't want the church to become is, is almost imperceptible. I would venture to say in any church where that happens, you, you can't look on and say, that was the moment where it happened, right there. It just happens. It just happens. Paul will tell Timothy here in this letter, he said the time will come when people will have itching ears and they'll heap up for themselves teachers. That there will be an insatiable desire on the part of the people to have their sinful desires fueled through what they hear uh, preached and taught in churches. And they won't endure sound doctrine. They won't want it. They won't want gospel ministry. Um, It's very interesting. Later in this chapter, chapters 3 and 4, where Paul goes into that and he says, 
um, that they'll heap up teachers from themselves and they'll turn away from sound teaching and they, 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 they'll harden their hearts to sound teaching. He then gives Timothy the exhortation, so preach the word. Sinclair Ferguson once said, when men don't want to hear the pure preaching of the word of God, the remedy is the pure preaching of the word of God. It's counterintuitive. It's not what church growth leaders will tell you. It's not what we think internally, but it's how God has constructed his kingdom in this world. It is how God has built and framed in the life of his church and the way in which his spirit is going to work in the lives of his people in the church. Gospel ministry is absolutely fundamental to the preservation of the truth. You know, it's very interesting that Paul will actually call the church in the pastoral letters the pillar and ground of truth. It's the, it's the ark in which the truth is to be preserved. And it's to be done so through faithful gospel ministries who, ministers who are themselves being preserved by the Lord. Um, as I read this week on the history of the Heidelberg Catechism, I was struck by several things. One, um, Ursinus and Olivianus, the two theologians who were commissioned by Prince Frederick II to draft the Heidelberg Catechism, um, they were 26 and 28 years old. I thought, wow, 26 and 28. And as Frederick reveals his desire for the catechism and the drafting of it and the commissioning of these two young theologians to write this incredible masterpiece. He says, I'm praying that God will preserve this and use this through all the rest of church history. I thought it was marvelous. He was praying for the preservation of what God was doing at that time through those men and the ministry of the gospel that he had called them to. Now, what I want us to consider more than that tonight is really the guarding of gospel doctrines. And notice that as the apostle now turns to Timothy, he charges him in verse 13. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, what, is, what does Paul mean when he says, follow the pattern of the sound words you've heard from me? Uh, is he talking about a private conversation that he's had with Timothy? Is he talking about private correspondence he's had with Timothy? What does Paul mean by that? Well, the word that Paul uses for pattern is in this form, and in the way in which it's used, it carries the idea of an impress, uh, something that is stamped down, pressed down, so that it leaves an indelible mark. And what Paul is clearly talking about is all of those general doctrines that he had taught about the principles of the gospel and that he had exemplified in his preaching ministry, in his teaching ministry, what he had exemplified in the churches in which Timothy and the other ministers themselves ministered. And, and they were familiar with the apostolic doctrine. They, they knew, uh, we might say this in a more mechanistic way, they knew the systematic apostolic doctrine. They knew, as our confession of faith says, how all the harmony of the parts came together and fit together. There's, there is an apostolic logic in everything that Paul writes. 
Paul is not writing systematic theological treaties. He's writing pastoral apostolic letters to the church as an apostle, laying the foundation for the church. But everything that Paul is saying has a coherent, unified dynamic to it in which everything that he teaches fits together perfectly to form the one doctrine of the faith and the one truth of gospel ministry that is to be proclaimed. Now, that's helpful to us because we so desperately need that. You know, um, Dorothy Sayers, the great uh, literary uh, figurehead of last century, gave a talk entitled Creed or Chaos, in which she said this, and I want you to listen carefully. She said, it is worse than useless for Christians to talk about the importance of Christian morality unless they are prepared to take their stand upon the fundamentals of Christian theology. It is a lie to say that dogma does not matter. It matters enormously. Sarah goes on to say, it is fatal to let people suppose that Christianity is only a mode of feeling. It is vitally necessary to insist that it is first and foremost a rational explanation of the universe. It is hopeless to offer Christianity as a vague, idealistic aspiration of a simple and consoling kind. It is, on the contrary, a hard, tough, exacting, and complex doctrine steeped in a drastic and uncompromising realism. Let me break that down and make that simple. It's not enough to talk about your Christian experience based on your feelings or whatever outcome you think it might produce that's pragmatically good. Christianity is fundamentally the truth of the sound doctrine that God has breathed out in his word on apostolic authority in every section of scripture and especially for the life in the New Testament church in the apostolic epistles. You know, in this very book, Paul will tell Timothy, all scripture, you know this verse so well, all scripture is what? Theonoustos, God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, instruction, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we sometimes like to say, I believe that the scriptures are inspired by God. But what Paul is actually saying is they are expired by God. That God has breathed out his truth. You know, we sang tonight... There's two great hymns in which we both sang about the abiding significance of the truth of God's word, the doctrinal truth. There's timeless truths. There's truths that the church is to preserve and defend and protect, to keep within the repository of her life in the world. This is one of the reasons why we love creeds and confessions. They're not infallible. They're not inerrant. Only God's word is. Only in so much as they are teaching the truth of God's word and the sense of Scripture can we say that they are coalescing with Scripture. B.B. Warfield, who I mentioned at the beginning of this, has a great chapter called The Biblical Doctrine of the Trinity, and he says the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You won't find it. You can search all day long, and you'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible. So should we throw the word Trinity out? No. Warfield says, in that article, he says, 
Inasmuch as we use unbiblical words and definitions and phrases in order to encapsulate everything that Scripture teaches in all of its parts as they harmonize together so that we can help people understand what Scripture's teaching, in that sense, the sense of Scripture is Scripture, so that we can say the doctrine of the Trinity is biblical because the Bible teaches the sense. And this is why we love our creeds and our confessions and our catechisms. They are giving us the timeless truths of Scripture. They're guardrails for us. Uh, there was an old Southern Presbyterian professor named William Childs Robinson who was asked once in a seminary class, Dr. Robinson, you, you treat the confession like it's an errant. The Bible, that's the only book for us. You treat this like it's an errant. And he said, oh, no, no, no. He said, the Westminster Confession of Faith is not an errant, but its theology is better than your theology. And it would do you a great world of good to study it so you could have your theology fixed by it. That's how we view the great creeds and confessions, especially the Reformed confessions in church history. They're great helps to us. Now notice that this is not something we're looking to men to do. We're not ultimately relying on men to preserve the truth of God. We sang in that hymn tonight about earthly kingdoms and powers and authorities. No thanks to them. The word doesn't abide because of civil governments and rulers and authorities and powers. They don't preserve it. God preserves his word. And notice that Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So that at the end of the day, the only person who can guard the truth of Scripture, the way in which it needs to be guarded is the Holy Spirit. And yet, God has given him to all of his faithful ministers and to all of his people. And that means as we look in the annals of church history and we read the great truths of uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism, and we, and we sit at the feet of these men who were themselves filled with the Spirit and who were themselves pouring over the Scriptures. And we glean from them the insights that they gleaned as they poured over the Scriptures. We are the beneficiaries of the preservation of the truth by the Spirit in them, who is now in us, as we then go and test those things against the scriptures ourselves. There is one more thing here in the preservation of gospel doctrine that's so important. It is not a bare intellectual mechanistic thing. And if, if the Reformed Church needs to hear anything, it's this. We arguably, and I don't think it's arrogant to say this, we have the best theologians and the best doctrine and the best teaching and the hopefully good preachers, decent preachers, <laughs> um, in the church. And yet, notice what Paul says. Paul says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson says this, 
Gospel truth has its own atmosphere. It expresses itself in a distinctive character. As Paul says, follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Truth produces Christian character. In the faith, my response to sound doctrine ought to be an increased faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. And in love, the outworking of my faith in Christ ought to be love for others in the body. So that if I am not preserving the truth of gospel doctrines in faith and love, then whatever I know is useless in my life. This is why Paul could say, if I have all knowledge and understand all mysteries and I have not love, I'm nothing. He's not saying love, not knowledge. He's saying knowledge ought to work itself out in faith and love in the lives of those who are appropriating it. The end goal of our studying sound doctrine ought to be the conforming of our lives more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. So that if I'm not becoming more like Christ in some ways, in the many ways that I need to be conformed to the image of Christ, then there's something fundamentally wrong with the way I am appropriating the doctrine I'm studying. Or there's something wrong with the doctrine I'm studying. Ferguson goes on to say, false teaching always leads to ungodliness. And truth ought to always lead to godliness. So that Christian conviction is wed to Christian character. And Christian conviction, as it is preserved and guarded, ought to produce Christian character in the lives of those listening to it. Um, I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism is divided up for this reason. You know, we've looked at most all, I suppose, of all 129 of the questions there, and, and they divide it very simply, and I know that many of you know this. They divide it under three categories, misery, deliverance, and thankfulness, guilt, grace, and gratitude. The first 11 questions cover our misery, our sinfulness, all the doctrines of Scripture that talk about what we are and how perverted and warped we are, fallen in Adam, under the wrath of God, condemned, judged by the law of God, everything that leaves me in a condition in which I am hopeless and helpless apart from the grace of God. And then questions 12 through 85, deliverance in Christ. And that includes everything from our regeneration to our justification to our adoption, the working of all three persons of the Godhead at work, redeeming me, cleansing me, sanctifying me, building me up. And then they include even a section on the sacraments and the role that the Word, the preaching of the Word and the sacraments and discipline play in God's work of redemption in the lives of His people. And then finally, questions 86 to 129, thankfulness. What sort of person ought I to be if these things are true of me? And they give that great exposition of the Ten Commandments and all of those intricate parts of Christian living and how, how much I need now to live out what Christ has redeemed me to be. Um, and I think as we consider that and we consider 
how all these parts fit together, and we consider what Paul says to Timothy here, we ought to be a people, and I want to apply this in a few ways tonight. Number one, we ought to all, not just ministers, but all of us ought to be a people who love studying theology. I know an individual who has probably only been converted, he's an adult, only been converted for a few years now, and um, is not heading to seminary, I don't think has any ambition to be a gospel ministry, and every time I talk to him, he's telling me what theological work he's reading, what he's reading in scripture, he's asking me questions, he is filling his mind and his heart with truth constantly. And I think that's how all of us ought to be. Now, I understand we have different seasons of life. We have different times. We have times where we can study in more focused ways and times when we can't. But all of us ought to be interested in sound doctrine. All of us ought to give ourselves to a deep, rich study of God's Word. And then I want to say all of us ought to examine ourselves and really ask the question, Am I being transformed by the doctrine I'm listening to, I'm reading, and that I'm filling my mind and heart with? Um, You know, we only get so many Lord's Days in life. We only get to hear so many sermons. How often are we reflecting back on what we've heard, meditating on it so that we can be transformed by it? Puritans would often say that quick reading makes small Christians, but it's in the meditating. It's in the turning those truths over, the things we heard this morning, taking them, reflecting back on them, turning those truths over in our minds. One theologian says, truth is like hard candy. You've got to suck on it to get everything out of it. You've got to turn it over in your mind. You've got to meditate often on what we're hearing, what we're reading. We need to think about it. We need to be thinking Christians for the good of our souls. And we need to be praying. I want to leave us with this. We need to be praying. Verse 14, notice what Paul says again, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Are we praying that God preserves gospel ministers, gospel doctrines, and us? Because unless he keeps us, unless he preserves us, we would go the way, notice the next section, many have turned away. Many turn away. I'm 42 years old. I have seen countless ministers over the last 10 years in the PCA leave the faith for a woman, for who knows what. Depart from the faith, reject the faith in our denomination. It happens. Paul says, you're aware those in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. We need to pray that the Lord would preserve us, guard us, keep us, keep us in the truth, and keep us as his people. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that Uh, We are absolutely dependent on you to preserve and protect your church. We pray for this congregation this evening. We pray that you would keep Wayside Presbyterian, that you would keep the ministers that you have called to minister in this church, 
that you would guard what has been entrusted to you on our behalf. We pray, our God, that you would keep your ministers free from sin, from rebellion, from wandering from the truth, from complacency and love of this world. We pray for the congregants in this congregation. We pray that you would make us a congregation that loves the truth, that loves sound doctrine, that holds fast to it, and that keeps it in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would preserve us and your truth by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us a greater measure of your spirit, a greater desire for your truth. We thank you and praise you, our God, for how you have done this thus far for us. We pray that you would be merciful and gracious to us as we look to you to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.